Listen now to God's word as it comes to us from Psalm 54. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. For the insolent have risen against me, the ruthless seek my life. They do not set God before them, but surely God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. In their faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Amen. And from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. Jesus sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark tends to write when presenting theological and teaching moments in a sandwich model. And that passage today that we read today exemplifies this technique. It's all done under the guise of the messianic secret. There are two distinct parts to this passage, each with its own set of theological issues. Both, however, both, however, raise questions of, of inclusion and exclusion. The first slice talks in a way that excludes the disciples from others in Galilee. The bottom slice includes a child in the midst of the disciples. The meat of the sandwich presents another prediction of Jesus's suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Raising questions, why is the scandal of the cross so difficult to understand? We're told that Jesus passes through Galilee, and Mark intentionally says he did not want anyone 
to know it, for he was teaching his disciples. Though the passage does not explain Jesus' feelings on secrecy, it does suggest that some teachings that Jesus offered are only offered to those that have a relationship with Jesus. Is the news of, of Christ's death and resurrection so shocking, so shocking that it can be only heard by those within the community? Jesus appears to be setting boundaries now between the disciples and other Galileans, but it also gives us a glimpse of the truth that only God, only God opens our eyes, our hearts, our minds, and our souls to faith, seeking, and understanding. The, the return through Galilee from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem is not an occasion for a new mission, but for instruction to the disciples, where Jesus predicts in private the passion and resurrection for the second time. Why the second time? There are three passion predictions. I'll give somebody a gold star if they can tell me those passion predictions in Mark. 8.31, 9.31, 10.33. There will be a test afterwards. It's followed by instructions on discipleship and incidents that show that the disciples have not understood Jesus' teaching just as Peter, James, and John did not understand what resurrection meant earlier. The passion prediction from today's text alters several elements from the previous version found in 831. Now let's review what 831 said. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. 931 tells us that the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he'll rise again. Notice, notice that instead of being rejected by the religious leaders, Jesus is to be handed over to human hands. Notice also that the verb has shifted from the passive voice, for all you English teachers out there, has shifted from the passive voice, be killed, to the active voice, they will kill him. The initial notice of the disciples' response shows a deepening separation from Jesus and the disciples. They're growing apart. Jesus is preparing them. Earlier, Peter had protested the first passion prediction, and the group who failed to understand the meaning of resurrection discussed it and asked Jesus whether Elijah would indeed have to come first. Now, now they're afraid to ask Jesus about the word that they don't understand. But we can't be too hard on those disciples. You see, God has not opened their eyes yet. They've not been filled with the Holy Spirit yet. Once more, Mark presents the scandal and the mystery of the cross. 
And Jesus' prediction of his impending suffering is his death and resurrection and the disciples' inability to understand his words are paramount. Why is it so difficult to understand and accept this teaching? I believe that the disciples are having difficulty understanding and accepting it because, because there's a deep divide between human knowledge and divine revelation. This passage, in part, highlights the human difficulty in understanding the ways of God because we are not God. Isaiah 58 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. Human limits of knowledge and wisdom in this case simply make it impossible for the disciples to comprehend what God is doing in Christ's passion. I suggest that there's a veil of darkness over the disciples. Their vision is, is blocked. And they're unable to see the truth of the one that stands right before them. Now the disciples quarrel about who is the greatest. And it prompts Jesus to remind them, last of all and servant of all, then brings a child into their midst and teaches the disciple, but reminds us that whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus is emphasizing the helplessness and the dependence, the humility, the lowly social status, the relation of child to parent and implies Jesus' own relationship to God as parent and our relationship with each other and God. Remember, children, for the most of human time, for most of human history, have been regarded as non-persons, not yet people, possessions of, of the father in the household, if you weren't that firstborn son, you were nothing. For Jesus to hold up a child as an emblem of a living God and living in God's household as a stand-in for Jesus himself was, was to offer a serious challenge to the social norms of the day. Our social conventions about children are so radically different from those that, that existed in antiquity, that we don't react with the same surprise that people would have in ancient times at the special attention given to a child. Although we may be annoyed, I don't think we're going to be annoyed anymore, but, but annoyed anymore when children become disruptive in the worship service. I can't wait. I can't wait for him to run up here and start asking a bunch of questions. Even if it's, why do you wear that tie? I cherish that moment. Or when children become disruptive in public places, we assume that even young people have individuality and dignity. 
I believe these stories which Jesus uses children as examples made it possible for children to be accepted in the early Christian communities. The Apostle Paul even cautions us in in 1 Timothy. Let no one despise your youth, he says, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. I believe that we would do well to recall Jesus' suggestion that the way we treat the youngest and the least is a good measure of our discipleship. It's one of the reasons why I came and I was drawn to this church. The committee will know I asked a number of questions that kind of popped out at me. There was a need, there was an emphasis placed on the youth and the kids in this church and in Lake City. The youth of the church and the Boy Scouts and the Cub Scouts and the Girl Scouts had a prominent role to play in our outreach to the community. And we still do. Jesus first calls the disciples to emulate the child, thereby renouncing all the social status And then he calls on them and us to welcome the child, to make space for those with no social status, since to do so is to welcome Jesus himself and the one who who sent him. Jesus shows that the child enables God to be known as one who overturns social hierarchies welcoming the lowly into God's embrace. The gift of children is thus not only the delight and wonder that children embody, but also about the way that children draw Jesus' followers into resisting our tendency towards greatness. Greatness in the kingdom overturns the usual perceptions of greatness and honor. The challenge we face is to learn to try and think and act as God does, but it it runs counterintuitively to our tendencies, to our behaviors, to our actions. All too often we pay service to the view that the first shall be last so long as we are not challenged to put that view to the test of accepting someone whom we consider the outsider. Karl Barth, Karl Barth, who fought the Nazis, wrote the Barman Declaration. Karl, Karl Barth describes the radical acceptance of others as a way to act and to be. He says, to think of every human being, even the oddest, even the most villainous, or miserable as one to whom Jesus Christ is brother and God is father. And we have to deal with each on this assumption. One of the most difficult tasks for, for volunteers at food and homeless shelters, along with other service organizations and, 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 and service uh, businesses, is to learn to treat 
the people whom they are helping with dignity. Our sheer familiarity with, with Jesus and the narrative of the gospel sometimes softens how radical Jesus' teachings about the nature and meaning of being the Messiah is. Even more so, our familiarity with the gentle, meek, and mild Jesus makes any talk of teaching Jesus with little children turn quickly into mush, domesticating its radical concept. There is power in Jesus' teachings today and how we minister. I may have used this illustration before, and if I have, it's a great illustration. June, June was a quiet person. She was retired school teacher. She always had her hair up in a bun, like the 1960s teachers had. I'll bet you Anne even had hair. No, oh no. It was in a bun, very plainly dressed, quiet, unassuming. She was always teaching the young children, the young children in Sunday school, and just, just, she just couldn't do it anymore. But she wanted to do something for and with the kids. One, one Sunday morning, one of her little ones came up running to her, Miss June, and hugged her around her knees and told June that she missed her as her teacher. So moved, so moved, June reached into her pocketbook that she had hanging on her shoulder and said, here, it reached in and grabbed a lollipop and said, here's a sweet for my sweet little girl. A little boy standing about three feet away from her, my four-year-old son Bobby, saw all that was transpiring with his classmate, and so it began. The lollipop lady was born. Each Sunday morning after worship service, she would sit to the left of the pulpit, my left. She would sit right there, and all the kids knew where the lollipop lady was. She would sit there all by herself, and then after worship, the kids would run to her. Run, and I mean run, don't get in their way. And they would come from all the different directions, all the different doors from Sunday school, from the two sides, from the back. They would gather around June, the lollipop lady, and she would gleefully hand out lollipops to all the kids, young and old. It was truly an event to behold. Every Sunday, visitors who would come to the church would see all these kids running and they wonder what in the world is happening. And when explained, they would join the church. I needed June. The kids and parents adored her. Oh, and she them. If you were to ask any of those kids now, 35 years later, 
35 years later, what do you remember about growing up in a church? It would be the lollipop lady. Wouldn't be any of those sermons. Wouldn't be those teachings. It was the lollipop lady. One Wednesday night, one Wednesday night as the pastor and I played racquetball, we were talking about the kids and the youth and why we were, what was happening in that we were getting youth from all over the place. The kids were just uh, exploding, and I know that it wasn't because of pregnancies. The kids were, they were all over the place, and the youth continued to come and were committed, and they continued to grow, and they were so engaged in church. And, and, and mid-shot, I blurted out, it's because of the lollipop lady. We both paused and realized the ministry and the power of that simple act she performed transformed the youth of that church. It had a huge impact on the lives of those kids and adults for so many years. Her, her lollipop bag, it got so big that she had to get a lollipop bag. She made one. And her lollipop bag lies in a memorabilia case as you walk into the church. The bag laying on a shelf with some yum-yum lollipops. It's a beautiful tribute to her ministry and all the hearts she touched, especially the kids. She surely, graciously used the gift that God gave her and showed what it takes to be great in the kingdom of God by doing what the Apostle Paul stated, don't neglect the gift that is in you, putting things into practice, devoting oneself to them so all may see your progress and your love. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Ken Goodrich, and I'm humbled that you took the time to listen to this podcast. I pray that the Holy Spirit moves you to ministry and that if you don't have a church home, that you are able to find one. Please feel free to tune in on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 12.20 p.m. for our Bible studies on Thursdays at 10 a.m. for our Learning Center courses, and of course on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. for our worship. Just go to fpclc.org to see all our various programs and events. Thanks again, and God bless you and keep you safe. May God embrace you and keep you in his countenance. Peace.